Back to Boychuk, but intercepted. Kopitar has Dowdy at his flank. Kopitar moving in, stick handling, Dowdy score! Oh, what a pass, and what a finish! Kings with a shorthanded goal. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Kings. Dowdy, shot saved by Stalock. He lost the puck, and the Kings still have it. Dustin Brown locates Kopitar. Back to Brown! Scores! Wow, it's fourth of the night! Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. My name is Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. Uh, we took a little break during the second round of the playoffs, but it is time to get back to talking about LA Kings hockey on this LA Kings podcast. Alex Faust joins me today for a season recap, a look at the current playoff matchups, and a look forward to next season. In the coming weeks, we're going to have uh, more conversations with other members of the organization. Some of them have been taped already, some of them have not. So never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Subscription links and recent episodes can be found at lakings.com slash podcast. Joining me now, LA Kings play-by-play announcer Alex Faust. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm doing great, Jesse. Just got back from a day at Tennis Channel, and uh, we're ready to talk some hockey again. It's kind of like <laughs> it's, right. it's weird getting right, right right back into that. Well, it's been a while since Kings fans have heard the sound of your voice, so uh, I know I enjoy it. I can't speak for all Kings fans, but that's true of anything. There's Kings fans. <laughs> there's, believe it or not, there's Kings fans who don't like Andre Kopitar, so you can't. Well, you know, I can't please everybody. Exactly. Um, but it is the end of your first season, and so I'm very curious to know uh, what your overall impressions, uh, now that the first season is done for you, what, what were your impressions of the gig? Oh my gosh, it's it's hard. <laughs> you know, and I knew that going in. I mean, it's, this is uh, it's the reason why there are only 30-odd people who get to do it on TV uh, in the U.S. and Canada. It's a, it's a challenging job. It's a challenging grind with the, you know, you're playing every other day, you're traveling. It's not even like baseball where you can linger in the same city for three, four days and play a series. No, you're on the plane the next thing when you're on the road. So that was, uh, that was a new experience for me. I think just even being part of a team was a new experience because I'm so used to, um, as a freelancer working for different networks before working with the Kings, uh, you just, you, come in you do the game you go home you interact with a couple people but otherwise people don't even know your name right but now you are the center of attention you carry the show and that's just a different um you know, frame of mind even to have going in is that you know you are the narrator from start to finish for the entire season uh and it uh you know as, as the season went along i i got more comfortable with that uh i got more comfortable with different aspects of the job but uh you know I, i'm I'm pleased with how the, the first season went from, from my own standpoint. And I think we had a pretty entertaining season to cover, even with its highs and lows. So I'm curious, as the play-by-play announcer, do you find yourself having to uh, to answer for fan expectations on things you have no control of? Uh, no. I, I tried to, when I got hired, answer every single time I got tagged on Twitter. Like, from the point that the press release went out and people were saying welcome and uh, you know again i was overwhelmed with the fan support there but i wanted to answer every single thank you message or question everything like that and i realized as the season went along i had, it's impossible um, especially after emotional wins or losses you can't um be there for every single one and i try my best to to be as interactive as possible on social media 
Uh, Jim is able to do more than I can um, just because uh, the virtue of his position, he's able to kind of see things uh, on a replay and be able to react that way. Um, or even in an intermission where I'm preparing kind of for the traffic that we're doing, he's able to answer fan questions on social media. So it's a little bit different, but I didn't feel like the, you know, we were bearing the brunt of that in any way. Jim winds up getting more questions than I do. I think a lot of people like to ask um, of anybody in a new situation, was there anything that was harder than you thought it might be? But I'm going to go the opposite route and ask you, was there anything that was easier than you thought it was going to be? Was there anything that you worked yourself up about that wound up being really not a big issue at all? Um, I think the preparation part of it, because I, I'm a little bit obsessive with the preparation side and I, in many cases, worried about the wrong stuff. Um, and to give you a perfect example, I, I built out this large one note of, you know, things that I need on, you know, the history of the team and every single player from, um, you know, the prospects on down and you, you don't need that as much as the year goes along. Now, granted, I need to know a lot about stuff that happened before I got here. Not only Stanley Cups, but history going all the way back into you know the founding years of the team. You don't need that every single game. You, you will right. tell stories, and especially as Legends Nights come around, you want to give context as the narrator for everything going on. But you know, little things like that uh, where, okay, I... I I'm okay going overboard because I'd rather have it than not. But it's you know, especially when you're in the grind of playing three games in four days, maximizing your time. Let's say I'm preparing for an opponent that uh, we've seen before. I don't need to necessarily go back and rehash the same stories or dive deeper into it. I can uh, kind of focus more on just the hockey side. And that's one thing that over the course of the season, I, I, struck a little bit more of a balance I felt in, in telling stories. I, I could get a little long winded at times and I'll fully admit that. And that's, you know, something that is a self-evaluation that I've done over the course of the year. But um, I'd again, rather have that information than not. So let's get into the actual season. I know you, you don't particularly enjoy having all the conversations swirl around you and your role, but you are in a unique situation as a play by play announcer to get a sense of what the, mood of the organization is that's that fans from an outside perspective don't get and one of the questions that i wondered uh all season long and i I know i'll never get an honest answer for this question but the question i wondered all season long was did the kings actually go into this season um wanting to make the playoffs i mean obviously every team wants to make the playoffs but did they think they would make the playoffs because this was a transition year there was a new coach there was a new general manager we knew there were going to be roster changes. Uh, the the bottom six wound up, you know, being completely different at the end of the season than it was at the beginning of the season. And at the beginning of the year, the, the refrain was, well, we're going to evaluate at the 20-game mark, the 50-game mark, etc. Then they storm out and have this unbelievable October. From your perspective, at the beginning of the year, did it feel like the organization was expecting to make the playoffs before the puck dropped? Yes, that was the baseline objective. That that making the playoffs—that's table stakes. I think they'd be uh, a little bit more scrambly in terms of we need to make moves, we need to keep changing, we need to keep evolving. If they didn't make the playoffs, mm-hmm. um, and yes, the the start they got off to was tremendous. And if they didn't get off to that start, they might not have made the playoffs. But 
you you can't play the what if games over the course of a long season because you did bank all those points. Yeah. Um, and, and towards the end, yeah, were they a 500 team? Maybe a little bit above 500. Yeah. Over the long haul this season, I think there were ups and downs. That may be the one thing that I think threw everybody for a loop this year is it's seemingly this team when they were on when they had a run when they were on a winning streak they could beat any team convincingly Mm -hmm. they can compete with anybody they had all the tools they executed the game plan they wanted to play faster they did they wanted to stay the best defensive team in the league they did they wanted to have terrific special teams well when their power play was clicking it was among the best in the league for stretches so all the little things that they wanted to do they did in these intervals and posted in the locker room is a board with uh you know how uh, john stevens this year he wanted to break the season up into five game segments and they would have targets for all those five game segments not only with points earned but different targets that they wanted to have defensively for numbers uh over the course of the year they they had those goals and for the most part they accomplished them what leaves everybody with foul taste in their mouth is just how quickly it ended being swept and how few goals were scored in the postseason if if that first round series had gone seven games this is purely me um kind of just extrapolating from the story arc this season if that first round series had gone seven games and you lose on bad bouncing overtime or do you really come away feeling as bitter about the season but because it ended so quickly, because they, um, you know, they had an opportunity the final week of the season to get home ice in the first round of the playoffs, because those opportunities were there to do just a little bit more, you feel like, all oh, right, there there was another level that this team could have achieved. That was the feel I got in the locker room. That even from day one, the baseline was make the playoffs. That is what this team expects to do. That is not the goal. That is just the expectation. From there there's another level that this team is capable of. And you heard Jeff Carter talk about it during the playoffs. There was another level there. The team just didn't get there. Yeah. I, I guess I'm hung up on the, on the word expectation because, you know, it's one thing where, you know, I have kids of my own, but I've got two younger sisters who are much, much younger than me. And I can tell you, yeah, I expect my little sisters to do well in school. And I expect Mm -hmm. them, and I expect them to be good kids. And I expect, you know, you have, you have all these things that you attach the word expectations, but then if you, got me in my private moment and you said, you know, do you expect, like, do you think this is how things will turn out? I might shrug and go, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. But when you tow that official line, you know, yeah, we expect to make the playoffs. Um, as, sorry, go ahead. But, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily, you know, an official line or not. I, I, the sense that I got going into the season, and again, this was just from, you know, my first interactions with Luke and Rob Blake was that, when they came in, yeah, they knew they were in transition. So if they didn't miss the playoffs, it wasn't. If they didn't make the playoffs, it wasn't going to be Armageddon. Let's put it that way. Uh, this is, you know, not a team that had been on a streak like Detroit's, where missing the playoffs is a big deal. And let's not make any mistake: missing the playoffs sucks. But it wasn't Armageddon that they missed, right? Because they were in that transition year. The expectations that they make it, if they fall short of that, or if they come close and just barely make, think about the end of the season when. Uh, you had Calgary and Dallas there up until the very end. Um, it was actually surprising to me that there were so many teams that faded down the stretch. I mean, think of the think of the Kings were in one of those positions where they were right there, they're right there, and they fade right at the end. Well, 
they didn't. I mean, they played through the full year and they qualified, albeit in the you know second wild card spot. But um, I, from the get go, I got the feeling that the baseline is make the playoffs. That the baseline should be you should build up a postseason appearance streak. But ultimately, the goal is to compete for the cup. Does that make sense? No, in that way, it, it does, and particularly because of what you said earlier about when the team was playing well, they could beat anybody, and, and right. they would look convincing doing it. So, I, so that's why I'm not totally out on this, you know, premise. It makes complete sense that a team with a healthy Norris finalist, a healthy Selkie finalist. Now a Hart Trophy finalist, you know, a former Consmite winner, right. Vezina finalist. Like, there's no reason to think that this team's top end talent shouldn't be enough to qualify them for a playoff spot. And, and as we saw, they did. Now, um, and I'll take the devil's advocate tack on this too. Beginning of the year, when I'm doing my prep for the season, I look at Kopitar and I look at Brown. Uh, I look at, uh, I mean, I guess you know, I can focus my attention on those two in particular and say, well, they were coming off some uh, a stretch of poor play and yes it was revealed that Kopitar was nursing a hand injury any of the World Cup and, and all that but you know, being honest you look at those, those two guys and they hadn't produced all that much in the years prior and then you're going to tell me that you know Brown is going to uh, be second on the team in, in scoring and Kopitar is going to be in the hunt for the league MVP all right you know that I don't know if it was a stretch to say in the preseason but you know, Kopitar did not strike anyone as being MVP caliber the last couple of years. So you know, I think that, if I'm being honest, is, you know, kind of you with all the pieces together, you think they're a playoff team. Then Carter goes out and then Kopitar puts up, you know, MVP type numbers in order to keep the team in playoff consideration. If you have a help, the real what if this year was if you had a healthy Jeff Carter the whole year, how would the year have changed? Yeah, he still well, wasn't a hundred percent in the postseason. No, and that was going to be my that was going to be my answer to your devil's advocate position was for everybody who didn't expect Andre Kopitar to make the leap from Selkie candidate to Hart candidate. Uh, there was no way to know that Jeff Carter would be out for sixty right. games. Exactly. Um, exactly. Moving backwards to what you said about the playoff series, um, maybe I'm just an eternal optimist, or maybe I just really love Jonathan Quick. But to me, the fact that it went four games, but that each game was lost by one goal, and two of them were one to nothing shutouts, and one of them was a double overtime game without Dowdy and Muzzin and Forbert, um, I was in. I was encouraged by that. I mean, call call me a lunatic if you if you will, but you know, we didn't play poorly. I, I don't think you're far-fetched by saying that because the Kings did not play poorly. Oh, they were swept. Right. But in no game did you feel like, oh, they're being outclassed here, right? No, and they, I thought they Jonathan, were right with them. I thought Jonathan Quick held them to the bare minimum of reasonable expectations. I mean, seven goals in a four-game series is absurd. The fact that Marc-Andre Fleury bested him is even more absurd. Um, but, yeah, I mean, had they gotten just a touch more scoring or had Carter, you know, been healthy all season or, or had um, Brown not needed shoulder surgery, you know, and I understand we're adding a bunch of ifs to, to history, but, but I mean, to me, I guess I'm just not bitter about the end result because they did make the playoffs. We did find out, Oh, Hey, Dustin Brown may, you know, maybe back, right? Like maybe he doesn't have the exact same season next year, but there's no reason to expect that he won't perform reasonably Jesse, well. 
yeah. one of your cardinal rules, sports yeah. are dumb. They are. <laughs> I mean, think about it. In that double overtime game, if you get a bounce here or there and you win game two, yeah. it's, it, it just you, you look at this series and you, you come away saying, again, there was nothing you could point out and say they did poorly, right? It's just, all right, they were beaten by a better team. So, you know what? I'll, I'll, I will be okay with that. It's frustrating, and it's especially emotional when it ends suddenly. You don't think it will. And I don't, nobody, nobody pegged Vegas to sweep the game. Nobody. Not, not one person in the hockey world had that. So when it does finally arrive, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. And that, that was the prevailing feeling. Like, wow. It, it, there's no more? That's it? Well, that's, I mean, that's every year, right? Like, I mean, even yeah, I even that, when it's a but... six or seven game series, or even when they miss the playoffs, you have that moment of, you know, and, and and you see it, it's funny, as the playoffs progress, you experience it in a different way where in the first and second round, you have at least two games every night. Right. And all of a sudden, now we're in the conference final, and it's, oh, there's, you know, hopefully it'll be one game every night, but, but eventually we'll get to a point where there's only one game every other night. Right, and then some, but if you, you look know. at Vegas, but again, from their perspective, if they were to bow out of the, if they were to get swept by Winnipeg, would anybody really be that stunt? Oh my gosh, it's over, right? It's, I, I mean, you, they they made that run, and they they you're it's that's the psychology of this, right? You're content with kind of where your expectations come in. Again, the, the whole season is playing with house money. With, with you know, they they have nothing to lose, so anything they have from here is gravy. I think there's – I'm fascinated by the Vegas story on a, a million different points. But one of the things that I find most fascinating is that there are people who seem utterly convinced that this team should and will and must win the Stanley Cup and that there's no other possible way for for the thing to play right. out. <laughs> Sports are dumb. What are these, the people wearing <laughs> the tinfoil hats that are saying this? Well, no, these are a lot of people in Vegas. But also, I, see, I just see more think pieces today about, you know, da- Down Goes Brown had a piece about, you know, should we want the Golden Knights to win the Cup or da-da-da. I mean, given that we are just now completing the second round, I don't know that in any other season there's as much time devoted to no. the potential of what if this one team of the four left wins the Stanley Cup. Well, but it, it sets the stage, right, because of Seattle on the horizon. It sets the stage for did they get it right in the expansion draft, and that's where I think the the heart of all this comes is did we create a monster? I, I'm willing to give a lot of credit to to Gerard Gallant and to George McPhee and the whole operation there to say you know what they were very shrewd given the circumstances and could have built a different team with better players on paper, but elected to go a certain way because they believed in it. And look what it did for them. And they didn't go out and get uh, – when the expansion draft happened, I remember looking at the players that were still left on the board. And I thought, wow, they could have built a better team. I, I guess they're looking to just you know pick up draft picks at the trade deadline. And that's all they want. But no, they actually had a plan in mind of we want a certain mold of player. We're thinking beyond just even skills. We want character guys in a certain way that, that fit a culture that we're trying to build. I mean it was – I give a lot of credit to that. Now, 
all these pieces of, you know, should we be happy or not with, with Vegas contending for the cup? I go back to the mid nineties and I don't know how people felt. You probably would know better than I would because you're a little bit older, but <laughs> how did people, how did people feel when Florida was in a cup final? Uh, I mean, it was novel, right? It was it was crazy because uh, that was what three years after they came into the league. Yeah, I think. something um, like that. But to Florida's um, credit, they probably had the best goalie taken in any of those '90s expansion drafts. Um, I, now somebody could dig up some number that proves me wrong, but but my recollection is that Van Beesbrook, while not a Mark Andre Fleury esque acquisition for that team. He was really good, and the only reason he was available was because the Rangers had Richter, um, I think, if I have that. It's been 20 years, so my memory could be slightly wrong about that. But yes, it was still a novelty, but then also they got swept at the hands of a Colorado Avalanche team that everybody, I think mm-hmm. I think everybody knew it was going to be Detroit or Colorado that year. And and once, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I understand the last game, I think went four overtimes or something silly like that before we made Coop score the winning goal. Um, but... But yeah, that was a that was not as crazy, uh, like I said, because they had a good goalie and New Jersey had sort of proven that with a good goalie and a defensive system, you could pull it all together. The Golden Knights thing for me, though, you know, you said nobody picked them at the beginning of the year, and that seems to be the narrative, right? Right. No, nobody would have traded rosters with them. Nobody saw it coming. Blah blah blah. But to me, and this is one of the reasons that I'm more interested in the Vegas Golden Knights story in general. To me, that just speaks to how large the league is at this point. Yeah. How scouting is conducted and how really there's not, I don't think it's a reasonable expectation for anybody to be able to look at a roster on paper at this point and, and be able to know what should be expected of it because you know um, what it is? It's college that? football syndrome. Yes. It's you, you have the preseason rankings based largely on what teams did the prior year and it shapes your view of, Whoa, a team wasn't supposed to do this when rosters change, yep. schedules are different, circumstances change. Uh, it's, I, mean, I think everyone got caught off guard by Edmonton, fully knowing that, well, <laughs> the goaltending wasn't great. And they don't the have defense, defense was yeah. non existent, <laughs> but they could score a lot. So, yeah, why not right. have them be the favorite to win the division? And, you know, I got caught up in that. I think it's it's only human to to base your expectations for future performance on past performance. But um, you know, we think, well, it's an expansion team, so therefore, right? Uh, and it just it just shapes our our view. And granted, I, unlike a lot of expansion teams, Vegas got off to a really good start. Uh, and I, you know, the, the circumstances around the the shooting there and how the team came together in the community. And really bonded. I, I'm telling you, there is something powerful about what happened early in the season to that organization, to the players, the front office, that whole organization, um, the way that they rallied with the entire city. Um, not unlike what you saw in Boston with the Red Sox in 2013. And their somewhat mir- miraculous run to win the World Series that year after finishing last the year before. I mean, it was not a very different team, but again, similar circumstances they rallied they rallied around the city the city rallied around them and it was a magical run i think you you've seen something similar with with what happened in vegas early in the year and uh, they were able to sustain it and, and here we are 
I think another uh, ingredient in the recipe is the notion of being a team of cast-offs or misfit toys, or I've heard a million different turns of phrase to explain the same thing. And in past expansions, the teams have been cast-offs and misfit toys and a bunch of bums where, you know, Steve McKenna was never going to was never going to suddenly evolve from a low <laughs> fourth line player who could score maybe two. He was points pretty tall though, wasn't he? He was very tall, but he was never going to be anything more than he was. Whereas a guy like Marcheseau or Carlson or Smith or McNabb or Schmidt, et cetera, et cetera. Well, 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 well let's pump the brakes on Carlson. Absolutely, you know. Hey, Vegas, give him credit again. They saw something in him. <laughs> Come on, like, no, for sure. Really? But the point is, you know, he was. A, t- a player that that was scouted all season long. So maybe you or I would look at him and shrug right. and go, I don't get it. But you increase his time on ice by five minutes a night. You put him in between two guys who have already scored uh, 30 goals, and I think Smith's previous high was 27 or something like that. And, you know, the history of the league is littered with guys who, when put in between two really talented wingers, um, wind up having decent seasons. Now, that doesn't mean I would have ever predicted that Carlson would triple his point output, but a guy like Steve Ruchin made a career out of playing in between Paul Correa and Timo Solani. Mm-hmm. Um, not that Ruchin and Carlson are, are at all the same player, but my point is you have a bunch of talented guys who now have that chip on their shoulder, and it's a much different outcome than you know an actual bunch of cast-offs. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it short on this comment. The, the reason why was the message that was delivered was we chose you for a reason. You are not a cast off. You are not misfit right. toy. We chose you for a reason. That's what, that's what Gallant and McPhee said to every single player that they picked. Hey, they started that culture. We, we wanted the team to be this way. And they did. I am, uh, I am equal parts ter- terrified and excited at the prospect <laughs> of them winning the Stanley cup. Yeah, well, you know, from a Kings perspective, I could understand the angst among fans for that team. And Jesse, I told you this when they played that home and home series back in February. This is going to be a delicious rivalry over the long haul, precisely because of how things started, because of how well they traveled. Think about how they how loud they were at Staples Center, how many Kings fans made the trip to, to Vegas, how many Kings fans live in Las Vegas. I love it, and I want there to be as much animosity as humanly <laughs> possible between these two teams. Again, remember, Kings-Ducks didn't really become something more until the postseason. Not that this postseason series is going to create anything, but I, I, I'm looking forward to a lot of great Kings and Knights games over the next couple of years. Even having played that one playoff series, and even though the Ducks have now been around for 25 years, and you know, they've won division championships, they won the Stanley Cup first, blah, blah, blah. I still don't feel upset about them the way I do. Like, Vegas has now already leapfrogged into the, you know, into the top of my list. <laughs> don't even tell though, that to Jim Fox. <laughs> even, though <laughs> even though there's part of me that wants them to win. But but for some reason, the Ducks still is just kind of like, Meh, all right, well, it's, it's the Ducks. I, I can't explain it. I don't know why. Yeah, but you know what? It's also you want more regional rivalries. You know, I think part of the 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 benefit of being on the eastern seaboard is you have a lot of teams that just can develop that naturally over time. 
Um, I mean, Pittsburgh and, and Philly, obviously, uh, but Pittsburgh and D.C. as well, and Pittsburgh and the Devils, and Pittsburgh and the Rangers. Like, these things have ebbed and flowed and evolved over time, uh, and, and they can be sold as Wednesday night rivalry whenever NBC <laughs> chooses to do so, and yeah. we go from there. It's, like, you know, it's it doesn't happen uh, artificially, and I'll give the league credit um, for looking at the situation saying, you know what, we could have some more rivalries on the West Coast. Now, I will also nudge the league in this direction and saying, if you want those to develop, put them in more national TV windows and promote them. But, um, you know, there's there's only so much you can do with the scheduling, especially with the West Coast teams and then the challenges that logistics present. I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that L.A. just doesn't think about Orange County. <laughs> Uh, or, or we don't really care about them, I guess, is, is what it really boils down to. But at any rate, there's four teams left in the NHL playoffs, and I can come up with ways of talking myself into liking three of them. Uh, <laughs> but I can't bring myself to root for the Capitals on any level. How about you? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> wait, wait, that was not what I expected. <laughs> I can talk you through the other three if you want. Okay, give, all right. All right, so yeah, Vegas... Then. Just obviously, it would be an amazing story, and 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 the 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 novelty of picking through how it was they were able to construct the team and and sort of hoodwink every other general manager into into getting the players they wanted. It, it would be as annoying as it might be. It would be equally fascinating and and entertaining. May I respond? Sure. No. <laughs> Look, I'm not. I'm not actively rooting. I'm just saying I could talk myself. Like, I don't want any of the four teams to win the Stanley Cup. I want the Kings to win the Stanley Cup. But if if Vegas does it. Then, right. then at least it'll be an interesting, um, or as I've said, it, you know, it'll it'll throw into doubt the way that thirty other teams built their franchises. All um, right, keep going. Should Winnipeg win the Cup? I think it it is a fascinating statement in the debate of smaller, faster players being the way to go. I think Winnipeg is like the third biggest team in the league, or something. Um, and not that not that it would. Uh, impact the the speed argument so much but just the idea that big boy hockey is over and you can't win with big lumbering players you need to be small and zippy like the uh the spanish art where we, it, when the, when the, when britain and spain had their big naval battles <laughs> the, God. at the end of the who was the who was the one that went smaller and faster was it the spanish they went smaller and faster to defeat the big You're English parts. You're the wrong right. tree on that one. Right, it's seventh grade history. I don't remember it exactly. But the point is, somebody decide, Somebody had naval superiority with these huge lumbering warships. And then the response was to go to smaller, nimbler, faster ships. And so that's what's, you know, the, the debate in hockey for the past couple of years is that teams like L.A. won by being huge and lumbering and wearing you down. And so now the future of the league is younger, smaller, faster, et cetera, et cetera. So Winnipeg is... Pulling up the chart right here. They're the biggest team in the league um, by by a, a margin. Um, How much does Dustin Bufflin single-handedly contribute to that? <laughs> I mean, that's what I want to know. It doesn't hurt. Um, but they've got Tyler Myers, don't they? I mean, I think he's... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, but but again, the notion that the team with the, with the most height, the biggest, the most size, winning the Stanley Cup in an era where, you know, supposedly we're moving away from that, I think would be very funny. And, and but here's my catch on that. Yeah. Because, and, and here's the buzzword that goes along with it. They play fast. So they are not necessarily a fast team by nature of having a bunch of track stars on their roster. 
even though their top line is, is speedy and skilled, but they play fast. They play the puck fast. And it's the same story with Vegas, right? It's yes, they have guys who can burn, but they play, they're, they're quick in their decision-making. They headman the puck right away. It's not a let's reset and figure things out and, and then start. No, they go right away. They play really fast. I, that's the key difference. And that's why this series is going to be fascinating because they, they kind of have that same attitude about it. I, I don't, I mean, I agree with you, but, but coach Sutter, one of the things he was, one of his many quotes that got repeated was uh, the puck moves faster than your feet. And so, yeah, exactly. so yeah. So, but I mean, but, but that is, that comes down to style and talent. And my argument against the people who say, well, the league's getting smaller and faster, younger, blah, blah, blah. My retort is always talent, talent will win. Talent will out. Talent will win. Right. And, right. and just when I watch basketball and I hear all these arguments about how, you know, you don't need big men anymore until all of a sudden there's a big man who's really, really good. And then there's no answer for it. And it's the same thing Come in hockey. On, James. <laughs> and so in hockey, it's like, well, would I rather have a player with Andre Kopitar's talent and ability who's six foot four or five foot seven? And the reality is I'd rather have one who's six foot four because he's going to be able to do a handful of things slightly better than the player that's five foot seven. It's rare that a Martin San Louis or, a, you know, one of the guys on Tampa um, winds up having the kind of dominance that, that some of the larger players do. So that's why I pull for Winnipeg. Um, Tampa satisfies my no new happy people rule. Um, okay. <laughs> so that's all I got for Tampa uh, is that they've won it once. If they win it again, you can shrug and go, well, that's just a well-run organization. So what are you going to do? Um, the Capitals, I have no interest in them winning the cup. Now, why, why does that all right, give me offend that. your I, delicate I'm, I'm going to have a nice argument with you on this. All right. I think mm -hmm. Alex Ovechkin deserves the Stanley Cup. Okay. I think Braden Holtby deserves a Stanley Cup. I think there are it is it's an organization that for years has put together all the pieces but they wouldn't execute in clutch time. Why so I I would say this is a team that has been knocking on the door and has come close and has been right there and this is their time. I don't see how you could hate unless you're a Rangers fan and you could say, well, Henrik Lundqvist deserves a cup, and you know he had his chance, and well, look what happened when they faced the Kings. Or you could say, well, you're a Flyers fan, and you're bitter, or you're a Penguins fan, and you don't want them to win because it upset your bit of a three-peat. How could you not look at Washington and say, well, you know what? The best goal scorer of this generation deserves a cup. Because I don't care about goal scorers. That's that's the ultimate answer. And <clears throat> excuse me. How do you win games, Jesse? You score goals. Uh, no, uh, you win by scoring more than your opponent. Well, you need to score in order to, to be able to score more than your opponent. Uh, yes, but what you don't need is one guy getting paid an inordinate amount of money to do one thing and one thing only. Now, I don't, I don't hate Alexander Ovechkin, which is something that is uh, an opinion that is applied to me time and time again. My issue with um, the Capitals. Is sort of the same issue that I have with the Flames and the Oilers, only the Capitals are actually more successful than the Flames and the Oilers. My problem with the Flames and the Oilers is that, in my mind, they have been 
um, hurting hockey for a decade. And nobody, in my mind, sort of either sees it or has the stones to repeat it. Um, if you look at the number of careers that, that those two franchises have tanked, um, and the amount of good hockey that we have been deprived by their mismanagement, it annoys me because I want to see really good hockey teams playing really good hockey. The Washington Capitals found a sort of cheat code to the dilemma that the Oilers and the Flames faced. And, and so, yes, they have Alexander Ovechkin, who absolutely is the greatest goal scorer of his generation and possibly of any generation. I wouldn't even deny the argument that he's the best goal scorer of all time. Um, but like Brett Hull before him and Jerome Ginla before him, you can't build a team around one really insanely talented goal scoring winger. Um, you just cannot do it. And Brett Hull won a Stanley Cup once he was marginalized to the point of being the second uh, or third option on Dallas. And then when he did it again on Detroit, he was like part of, you know, that absurd third line that had something like 1,800 goals between them. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the Brett Hull that was scoring 76 goals a season when he did it. Jerome McGinley never won a Cup. He made it to the final. And there's a handful of other players, Patrick Marlowe. Um, and other forwards who, who, uh, were incredibly talented, incredibly gifted goal scorers. So when you say he deserves to win the cup, I sort of shrug and I go like, I don't know if he does or he doesn't, but I want teams that build their franchise the way that I think a franchise ought to be built to be rewarded by it. And if the Capitals win the cup this year, I think it'll have way more to do with guys like Kuznetsov and Carlson. But my fear is the narrative will be, Alexander Ovechkin finally learned how to win, or Alexander well, Ovechkin I mean, finally. And the reality that's is because that's easy. That's the easy narrative right. to have. I, I mean, guys like like Backstrom, uh, I think Carlton. You brought up. I'm bringing. Let me just scroll down here, guys. Holpe's part of that core that they've developed. Niskin. I mean, they've got a couple of guys that maybe they didn't draft all of them, but they they put together this this core group that, in my mind, I would almost liken to the Kings. I mean, they have a, two really good lines and some solid defensemen with a couple of young up-and-coming guys who maybe haven't made their mark just yet. But you have this, this really good cream of the crop up there, and then the rest of it kind of fills in from there, and, and they're building towards something that's that's more sustainable over the long haul. I, so I, I, that would be my only counterpoint to yeah, like I way. said, my fear is just that the narrative becomes rather than oh look look at this Evgeny Kuznetsov is you know has almost the same offensive production as as Ovechkin and he takes almost as many shots which for people who listen to this podcast a long time will know is almost impossible because Ovechkin outshoots everybody on his team by a margin of two to one at the at the at the best um, but the story in my mind won't be. Hey, look, they have a second player who's just as good as Ovechkin. It'll just be, oh, Ovechkin finally made it over the hump. Good for him. Um, and I don't like that. And uh, I don't want to see her rewarded, and I won't cheer for it, Alex. I won't. All right. Well, you know what, Jesse? <laughs> we will have to agree to disagree. <laughs> so moving forward, <clears throat> excuse me, from the King's standpoint, obviously they can't win the Stanley Cup. But I'm curious what... This year. No, not this year. There's always next year. <laughs> well, so let's talk about next year. What are your, uh, without knowing all of the things and changes that will happen in the offseason, 
What do you think a reasonable expectation for the Kings next season is? Playoffs, one round in the, one round of the playoffs. Um, does it matter? Does it matter if you know if they lose in the first round, but it's a really competitive series? I mean, what what are you looking for in, in year two of the Alex Faust era? Well, you know, heck, I just want good hockey, right? <laughs> that's, all, that's all I care about in my. Right, you know, I I want good compelling stories to talk, about. but no, realistically, I want um I want to see this team. I think you know, incremental improvements are fine. You can shoot for winning the cup, and by virtue of qualifying for the Stanley Cup playoffs, every team that's in the postseason has a shot. Some better shots than others. I think as fans, we would be happy with incremental improvement to okay, let's let's either contend for the division title, let's finish third or uh you know let's let's make the playoffs but make it to the second round or go to a seventh game and you know maybe you lose to the president's trophy winner and they haven't come from the western conference you know things like that um but i think it's it's getting that incremental improvement because it is not an overnight process especially when you have so such a large core i mean the kings are not blowing this thing up um and when you have so many guys who are under contract for a long period um, you know, Drew Doughty notwithstanding, and they'll deal with that over the summer. But, you know, this is what you have to work with. So it's it's building out incremental improvements. I think you've seen that with the free agent college signings that they put together. Um, you know, this Daniel Brickley kid is going to be interesting to watch next year on the back end. But getting a little bit more scoring depth up front. And that, you, Kings fans have heard that for so many years. Need more scoring, need more scoring. Well, uh, it might be arriving with Gabe Velarde. Um, you know, it might be arriving based on um, any sort of off-season moves that come about. But that's all that I'd be looking for is, a, again, a baseline, is that incremental improvement. I think from the coaching staff, a quick win, stop giving up first-period goals. <laughs> stop giving up the first goal of the game. Like, again, that's an incremental improvement. Even if it results in maybe two or three more wins over the long haul of the season, it's just that, you know, that sets you up for success, whereas conceding the first goal puts you behind and forces you to chase the game as they did too many times this year. So that's all I'm looking for. Am I shooting for the moon and saying, I think this team should win the Stanley Cup? Well, yes, they'd like to do that. And that is the goal that every organization sets forth for themselves. But I think being realistic as well, you can't say, well, if we don't win the Stanley Cup, it's a failure because every year will be a failure and uh, you won't have anything to build on. I think there are a lot of positive things to build on here. And a lot of areas for improvement with this club, but so long as the core of this group is is um, producing, and they're able to improve at the margins and with depth, then you've got a team that at the very baseline makes the playoffs and has a shot to make it to the second round. And you know what? From there, it's all great. You mentioned them not being scored on first, uh, and I think I can't remember now, but I think it wound up being sixty percent of the games. Uh, they played, they got scored on first. They certainly led the league in wins after trailing in the first period. But every time I would look it up, I was always astonished at how many other teams were also winning a bunch after getting scored on first. When I was growing up, there were two stats that I heard over and over and over again. And that was playoff teams uh, at Thanksgiving will inevitably wind up being playoff teams at the end of the year. And the other was that the team that scores first 
wins 90% of the time. But looking at it just now, LA has 12 wins after being scored on first for a 324 mm-hmm. percentage. San Jose Sharks had 10. The Devils had 9. Minnesota had 9. Um, I do think Boston led the league in terms of volume yeah. of wins when when it's being scored upon first. So here's my view of this, and, and I think part of it is due to the changing nature of hockey. In a more defensive era, that may have been true. Um, and this was, you know, after uh, scoring really dramatically fell off a cliff from the early 90s um, onward. That was certainly true. I think as goals as goal scoring has increased, then that is not necessarily the rule. Here's an interesting stat that Jim and I used a lot and maybe didn't talk about enough on, on air over the course of the year. The percentage of teams that win a game after trailing from the first goal is somewhere between 67 and 70%. So about two-thirds of the time that teams score the first goal, they win. It is the same percentage for teams scoring the second goal in a game. So if you think about it conceptually, you tie the game 1-1. You have a chance to win two-thirds of those teams that score the second goal to tie the game 1-1, let's say, or even, you know, it's 2-0. But realistically, the second goal of the game, you have an even better shot to win. So it's, I think the dynamic has changed a little bit in hockey from it's not just that first goal, it's what happens when you play with a lead? Do you turtle? Do you become playing a defensive shell? Does the other team, do score effects take over? The other team starts possessing more, putting more attempts on goal, and therefore has a higher chance of, of them going in? Do they then carry that momentum after that goal? It's The game has changed a little bit, uh, but I think that's the one thing to keep in mind is it is not that first goal that is your death knell. It's the second one. And that's you know, one of the projects I'll be going through over the offseason. I'm, I'm going to be charting every single goal. Um, and from the Kings' perspective, all right, how many times was the second goal given up in that first period? And how many comeback wins did they have then? And kind of working those percentages vis-a-vis the rest of the league. Um, and just coming up with some interesting things that we can use for next season. Uh, when we get to that juncture. Well, I would love to see the results of that. One of the things that does scare me about the Washington Capitals is in that series with Pittsburgh, I think they had, what, a overtime goal, a goal mm-hmm. scored with, what, 18 seconds left in regulation, and then mm-hmm. another goal scored with, like, less than two minutes, maybe less than one minute. I mean, they, they did a little bit what the 2007 Ducks did, where they would hang in, hang in, hang in, but then they they were always the team with the dagger in their hand late when it counted. I'd be Mm -hmm. curious to see how much of that um, reveals itself in your study. Alex, I want to thank you very much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Jesse. And uh, I guess we'll talk uh, probably after after the draft, maybe free agency. All right. All right. Talk to you soon.